But Romans 2, chapter 2, verses 14 through 16, the title of the message, The Voice of Conscience. Romans 2, verse 14. For when Gentiles do not have the law. Now by Gentiles, uh, the, the, the scriptures and especially the Jewish people divide all the world and all the people of the world as Jews or Gentiles. So if you're not a Jew, then you are a Gentile. So or the Jews and all the other people in the world would be a correct way of saying it. Jews and Gentiles. And so it says, for, for when Gentiles who do not have the law, see the law was given to the Jewish people. And so we Gentiles, it was not given to us, although we are under uh, command and obligation to obey it. But at the beginning, the Gentiles did not have the law, but what they do, they do instinctively. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these, that is these individuals not having the law are a law to themselves. In that, they show the work of the law written in their hearts and their conscience. In other words, although they do not have the written law, they do have the law of God written on their hearts. So they are without excuse. Their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. So he's talking about the coming day of judgment, the day in which all people, Jews and Gentiles alike, will stand before the Lord and give an account to the Lord for what they have done in their response or not response to the law, whether it is written or whether it is written in their hearts. Now listen, if you have the New Living Translation, this might clarify a few things about it. Even Gentiles who do not have God's written law show that they know his law when they instinctively obey it, even without having heard it. They demonstrate that God's law is written in their hearts for their own conscience and thoughts either accuse them or tell them that they are doing right. And this is the message that I proclaim, that the day is coming when God, through Christ Jesus, will judge everyone's secret life. So God knows everything about us. He knows what we say. He knows what we do. He knows what we think. He knows what's in our minds. He knows what is on our hearts. And judgment, when the judgment comes, remember uh, the Bible tells us that the Father has turned all of the judgment over to his Son, the Lord Jesus. So when sinner and Christian alike, whether we're at the standing at the bema of Christ, the judgment seat of Christ, or whether the lost who stand before the Lord at the great white throne judgment, we will all be judged by and through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ in how we have responded to the revelation of the Lord, whether it is in the written word or whether it is the word that is written upon the conscience or upon the heart. Notice four things in these verses of scripture. The word instinctively, instinctively, that means down in your hearts. Uh, all of us have an inner instinct. All of us know deep down on the inside what is right and what is wrong. And so it's all written on our hearts. 
Then notice the word hearts. The word hearts, of course, uh, refers to um, that, that inner being. He's not talking about the muscle in your body that pumps the blood all through your body. Uh, there, the word heart is used in reference to your innermost being and all that you are is wrapped up in that word heart. So you have a physical heart, but you also have an inner heart. Uh, the, the thing about the conscience is you cannot see the conscience. Uh, you, you can see the human heart, you can see the lungs, uh, uh, all the different parts of your body. You could have a surgery or an x-ray and, and all of your inner beings are exposed and people can, well, that's your heart, that's your lung and liver and on and on it goes. But there's, there's not a picture of the conscience. Uh, that, that is just a part of your innermost being. Uh, it's, it's like what Mark Twain says through Huckleberry Finn that the conscience takes up the major part of the inside of me. And so although I cannot see it, but I can feel it, and you can too. You see, the conscience has a threefold responsibility. The conscience tells you what is right and what is wrong. It tells you what's right and what's wrong. The conscience' second responsibility is to encourage you to do what's right and then to punish you when you do what's wrong. And, and then it, it helps you to, encourages you to do what's right. You know, when you're tempted to do something wrong. You, you remember these little cartoons that you used to see where uh, the, the devil would sit on one side, on one shoulder, and, and the angel would on the other, and here's this guy being tempted to do something, and the devil would say, go on and do it, go on and do it, go on and do it. And the little angel on the other shoulder says, no, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. That is a cartoon way of demonstrating what your conscience does. Your conscience says to you, this is wrong, do not do it. This is right, do that. But if you choose to do wrong, then your conscience will punish you. You will feel guilty. If you do what is right, oh, then the conscience will lift you up and give its stamp of approval and encourage you for having chosen to do what is right. That is the threefold responsibility of the conscience. And it is written on your heart and in your thoughts. You have these thoughts that run through your mind. And that is the way that God has intended us to operate. You know, there is, the conscience has also been referred to as that inner light that shines within you. And in Psalm 20 and verse 27, the, the, the psalmist wrote, the spirit of man is the lamp of the Lord searching all of the innermost parts of his being. So it is as though the, the Lord just has a light on the inside of you and he searches everything up and down, sideways and lengthwise. It just goes all through you. That the, the, uh, the Lord Jesus talked about the, the lamp or the light and, and having the single vision within the inside of you. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about the conscience that we have. Now, I believe whether you, you have a, a, a divinely inspired revelation, such as what we have in the scriptures, that there are two basic ways beyond the scriptures that God gives proof of his existence. The first is creation. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth forth his handiwork. So all you have to do is to look around you at the beauty of nature and this world and say, this could not have just happened by accident. Somebody and not something, it's not just a big bang. If it's a big bang, where did whatever went bang come from? 
There has to be a beginning, and we believe that the beginning was with God. That's what it says in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God. There was a time when there was nothing but God. But God created everything that is in existence. And you look at the world and you look at nature and its beauty. The heavens declare and proclaim the existence of God and the firmament or the sky is his craftsmanship. He created it all and it's proof of his existence. The second proof of God's existence is in the conscience. Billy Graham said he believed that the greatest proof for the existence of God is the human conscience. Mankind, human beings, are the only ones who have a conscience. Animals do not have a conscience. We do. It tells us to do right. It warns us to not do wrong. It encourages when we do right. It punishes with a guilty conscience when we do what's wrong. It's like driving down the highway in a two-lane road and you come upon a section where there's a yellow line on your side of the road, what does that yellow line tell you? It tells you, don't pass. Now, the yellow line doesn't keep you from passing because I had to go to Fort Worth this week, a couple of three days ago, and on my way there, some idiot, uh, some, <laughs> some individual pulled out <laughs> when there was a yellow line right there and endangered all of us because there were a couple of cars in front of me and he couldn't wait, man, he just took out and went on. It, that yellow line didn't keep him from doing that. It just warned him. If you pass during this yellow line, you're endangering yourself and in the lives of other people. You could die if you were to do that. And that's what the conscience does. The conscience tells you, do this and you'll harm yourself. Do this and you're gonna feel guilty. Now, it can't keep you from doing it. It just warns you, if you do this, this is what's going to happen. You're going to feel guilty. That's the purpose of the conscience. The conscience warns us. Now, before we get into the message, I want to show you a, a picture uh, that's, uh, of a siren that is here in Nacogdoches. Uh, now, this picture uh, goes back all the way to 1927. Now, the, the the siren does, let me put it that way. This was a, an article that came out in the, the Daily Sentinel just a few years ago. Uh, the two gentlemen standing there is Tommy Lambert and George uh, Trophy, uh, 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 Trouty. And uh, one is a lieutenant in the fire department at the time of the picture. Both of them are firemen. Over here on the square where the visitor center is, on the southeast corner is Central Fire Station. And on the top of Central Fire Station is this siren. It was placed there in 1927, back when there was only volunteer firemen. So whenever there was a fire in Nacogdoches, this siren would go off and warn everybody and announce to the whole community that there was a fire and the volunteer firemen would go and try to put out the fire. This siren is still located, as far as I know, on the top of Central Fire Station here in Nacogdoches. The only thing is, it doesn't work. It's been disconnected. Disconnected. So it's of no use. And you know, if you don't handle your conscience in the right way, you can disconnect your conscience. And it will become a dead conscience to you. 
And even though it would like to siren and blast and tell you, hey, don't do this. You're going to hurt yourself. You're going to commit sin. You're going to be in big time trouble with God. But you just said to God, no, get away. Leave me alone. It's my life. I'm going to live it the way I want to live it. And if you continually do that, the point will come. You pass the point of no return and your conscience is dead. That's why a lot of people can do things that are unthinkable horrendous, terrible things in life and it not bothered them. Not bother. We'll talk about that as we get in. So there's about four or five ways that the Bible describes or characterizes the conscience, that unseen element that makes up the major portion of your inner being. So let's look at the four or five different consciences that one can have. The, the first one the Bible mentions is uh, an evil conscience. These are listed for you on your outline. In Hebrews 10, the Bible says, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Now the word evil there means a guilty conscience, a bad conscience. It is a conscience that is oppressed with sin. It is an individual whose conscience is constantly committing sin. The word evil here uh, comes from the Greek word from which we get our English word pornography. When you saturate your mind with pornography, you, you develop an evil mind. It's bad, it's grievous, it's lewd, it's malicious, it's wicked, it's a derelict, and it hurts. It's evil, it's bad, it has little value, it is unstable, and it's used ethically in the sense of being oppressed to God. You just say no to God, and then you just open yourself up to, be de to developing an evil, an evil conscience. Woe, you know, Isaiah 5.20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. So you think about what's going on in, in our world today of, of, of things that have been changed from we call what's good evil and evil what's good. Uh, well, well, for one thing, Adam and Eve did this. They rejected God's command and God's promise. God said to them, don't eat of this fruit. Well, they had a better idea. They said, well, what God's saying, the devil tricked them into doing this. Well, that's, you know, that's bad. So eat it. So they swapped and changed, reversed what God said was good. They said, it's evil. And so you just vice versa. And then you have what I'm referring to as premarital relationships. Uh, when, when two people live together, they say, well, marriage is, is just a piece of paper. So let's don't get married. Uh, let's just live together. Well, well, there you go swapping good for evil. I, I tell you what, you go down to the bank, try to borrow $10,000. And the guy puts out there a piece of paper and he says, would you sign here? He said, well, I, I don't want to sign there. That's just a piece of paper. Well, you think you're going to get your money? I doubt it. So they put a marriage license out there in front of you and say, well, sign this. Well, it's just a piece of paper. Why, why do I want to, you know, here's a better way. Let's just live together. Let's have common law marriages. So we swap something good for something that's evil. And, and, and so let's just live together. 
And, and then there's honesty. Why should I be honest? Uh, uh, lying? Uh, well, you know, you used to be, uh, you know, you tell a lie. Well, man, that, that's a terrible thing. But nowadays, lies just go on all the time, all the time. Abortion? Uh, there, there was a time I, I, I didn't remember as a child why certain girls suddenly disappeared from the scene and you didn't see them anymore for several months and then they finally all showed up back and, and later discovered, well, what, you know, it was, was a disgrace and a shame for a woman to get pregnant outside of wedlock and so they just sent them off for a while so they could have their babies and then come back and you'd never know any different. But now that's all changed. Well, we, we've taken something good and righteous and holy and the way God designed it and we exchange it for something evil. Something that, that's, that's not acceptable in our society, although our society has changed. Abortions, same-sex marriage. Why, five years ago, 10 years ago, it would have been an unheard of thing for people to be recognized as having same-sex marriages. That, that was an abomination before the Lord, but now the Supreme Court has acted like God and redefined it for us, and now it's being pushed on us, and what we used to say was evil is now saying by our society as a whole and by our Supreme Court that that's all good. And it's not. And so here you have an evil conscience that has saturated our society. Woe unto those who call evil good and good evil. It's an evil conscience. The second kind of conscience the Bible describes is a seared conscience. 1 Timothy 4, 1 and 2, but the Spirit explicitly says that in the latter days and times, some will fall away from the faith paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a burning iron. You remember going to, to see the movies, uh, the westerns, and, and here's a gr group of men, they're out in the Indian territory and they're being attacked by the Indians and boy, here come the arrows and one of them gets hit with an arrow and, and it's, uh, it's in his chest or in his arm or on the back. And so they got to get it out of there or he's going to die. So they build a fire and they stick the knife in the fire and try to get it as hot as they possibly can. And then they pull the arrow out and they have to sear the wound. They have to put a, a, a scar over it to keep it from bleeding so that he wouldn't bleed to death. And so now he's got a seared place on his body so the blood will stop flowing. Well, when you have a seared conscience, you just put a hot iron to your conscience and your mind and it doesn't bother you to do wrong. How do you think uh, uh, the, the ISIS uh, terrorist uh, get by with taking 21 men and forcing them down on their knees and then taking a knife and cutting their heads off as though it was just another day at work? It doesn't bother them to do that. Their consciences are seared. It was just like the Nazis during World War II when they had all those prison camps and they were exterminating the people and shoving them into those ovens and poisoning them and, and then just burning them to death and walking off just dusting their hands off. So what? So what? So what? What about Ted Bundy? You remember Ted Bundy? He was a serial killer. He murdered 36 women. Never bothered him. 
Why? Because his conscience was seared. He just kept saying no and no and no to his conscience. And he kept feeding the evil thoughts into that conscience. You see, your conscience, I guess another word we could use would be your mind. It's just like a computer. What comes out of your mind and out of your conscience is what you put into it. And so if you just say no often enough, you're going to have a mind that's just seared and, uh, and immune to all kinds of guilt. I could, I could murder people and, and I, I want to say to people like that, I can't help myself, I'm a serial whatever, uh, you know. Well, I could say, well, God made me that way. No. If, that, if that's the case, I could say, well, God made me a serial killer. I can't help myself. See, I shove off my responsibility. God made me do it. So a seared conscience is there. Third, thirdly, it's a defiled conscience. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. So the word defiled means uh, unclean. Notice in Titus 1.15, both the words defiled and unbelieving. So they have an unbelieving uh, heart. They, they, don't, they have a heart without faith. They don't believe in God. They don't trust God. And, and their, their, their minds and consciences are unclean. And uh, it, the word unclean means dirty. It means corrupted. It means tainted. And then there's the weak conscience. 1 Corinthians 8, 7 talks about a conscience being weak. And that, that refers to a person who's delicate and sensitive in his spirit or her spirit easily swayed by those who are around him, lacking knowledge, uh, easily offended. A person walks around with a chip on their shoulders, unstable, immature, very critical of other people, very legalistic. Is this kind of person who has a weak mind. But then the fifth one is a good conscience. A good conscience is talked about in 1 Peter three sixteen. If someone asks about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. But do this in a gentle and respectful way. Keep your conscience clear. Then if people speak against you, they will be ashamed when they see what a good life you live because you belong to Christ. So it is possible for you to have a good, clean conscience. And, and this word good means, of course, perfect. It, it produces pleasure and satisfaction. It's entirely clean. And it is enlightened by God's grace. This, a clean conscience, is what comes from the Lord. It comes from the Lord. And oftentimes we'll hear, you know, remember the movie that was made back in 1940, uh, Pinocchio? Uh, where Pinocchio was a puppet that was given life. Only thing, he, he didn't know the difference between right and wrong. He didn't have a conscience. And so um, uh, the fairy godmother gave him a conscience in the name of a little cricket. Jiminy Cricket, Remember? And the little catchy tune says, uh, when you're tempted to, to slide away from the truth, just give a little whistle, uh, just give a little whistle and let your conscience be your guide. Did you know where that originated? It didn't come from Disney World. It didn't come from the cartoonist. You, go have to, you have to go back to 1300 years to a Muslim leader who was the father to one of Muhammad's wives. And he had led uh, the insurrection or rebellion against Jer uh, Jerusalem and on his way back, he stopped and uh, said a prayer. 
And that prayer said this, speak the truth. Do not hesitate to say what you consider to be the truth. Say what you feel and let your conscience be your guide. That came from a a Muslim uh, leader 1,300 years ago and little Disney World is saying, okay, let your conscience be your guide. Listen, if your conscience has not been touched and changed by the saving grace of Almighty God, it is one of, if not the most dangerous things that you can trust. Your conscience, you keep saying, someone described it like a a, a three-pointed triangle. And when asked this, this Indian, I believe it was the way the story goes, that this Indian was said, what, what is a conscience? And he said, well, in my conscience, there's a, there's a three-pointed triangle. And every time I do something wrong, it turns. And when it turns, it stabs me and it hurts. But the more I do it, the more it turns. And the more it turns, eventually the sharp points are worn off until it just keeps turning and it never bothers me. It never bothers me. And that's what I'm saying to you. You keep doing the same wrong thing, the same wrong thing, the same wrong thing. And at first it hurts you, it hurts you, it hurts you. And then all of a sudden, those sharp points are gone, gone, gone. And you just do it one after another after another and it never bothers you. It never bothers you. You cannot trust a conscience like that. It will mislead you every single time. So let your conscience be your guide only if it has been touched by the saving grace of God. And that brings me into this second part of our, of our message for today about the cleansing of the conscience. How do, you, how do you get a good conscience? How do you get a clean conscience? Well, it begins with Jesus. It begins with you accepting Christ as your Savior. Hebrews 9, 14 says, how much more will the blood of Christ cleanse what your conscience? See, isn't that interesting? That he's talking about when you, when you have your, your sins washed away by the blood of Christ, he includes the conscience. When you're saved and you repent of your sins and you turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, his blood cleanses you every part of your soul and the conscience is that unseen part of your soul. And it cleanses your conscience. To cleanse means to purge and to purify and to sanctify. We talk about sanctification all of the time. The word sanctified means to be set apart. And God does that with your body, but also does it with your soul and with your spirit. And he sets you apart from the rest of the world. You're not to be like the rest of the world. The rest of the world says, call evil good and good evil. God says, no, good is good and evil is evil. Don't do it. 1 John 1, 7 says, but if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship one uh, with another and the blood of Jesus Christ goes on, cleanses us from all sin. So you come to Jesus if you haven't already done so. Give yourself to the Lord Jesus. Embrace him and accept him as your personal Lord and Savior. Invite him into your heart, into your innermost being, into your conscience and turn your conscience over to the Lord. And let him cleanse it for you. The second thing is to confess known sin. You've heard me before. Sound like a broken record, I know, but the broken bone illustration. If you fall down and break your bone, you're going to be in misery until it's set. And as a believer, even as a believer, you can still sin, and we do. All of us do. And when we do, we're going to have a a broken fellowship, not relationship, but fellowship with the Lord. And I'm not going to be on good terms with the Lord because sin serves as a barrier between me and my fellowship with God. And God will have nothing to do with sin, not anything at all. 
And so if I want to, to have a fellowship with the Lord, I must get rid of sin and I get rid of sin by confessing it to the Lord and agreeing with him that I have sinned and asking for forgiveness and cleansing. And so I come to Jesus initially and accept him as Savior. As a Christian, when I sin, it interrupts my fellowship, not my relationship, but it serves as a barrier. Get rid of it by confessing it to the Lord. God, I told a lie. Forgive me. Don't, don't, don't just say, God, forgive me of my sins. Name it. And you, again, you heard me say before, well, I don't know what my sins are. And I tell you what, guess at them. The Lord convicts you of it. The Holy Spirit will show you what you're guilty of and name it. Lord, I, I lusted after somebody. Lord, I told a lie. Lord, I took something that didn't belong to me. Lord, I cheated on a test. Whatever, I disobeyed my parents. Whatever it is. Hopefully it's not murder or steal anything, but yeah, you ask God to forgive you. You name it and claim his forgiveness for it. And then the third thing is to make restitution if it's, if it's due. Jesus said, if you are presenting your offering and you remember that you are at odds with a brother, a fellow Christian, something's happened between the two of you, there's been harsh words spoken, uh, uh, things were said and done, or uh, you, you go be reconciled with your brother, Jesus said, first of all, and then you come back and lay your offering on the altar. So when you know that there's a disruptive relationship with somebody, get it right. You remember Zacchaeus, the wee little man who climbed up in the sycamore tree because of the Lord he wanted to see? He was a tax collector. And he had over-collected because the Roman government said, here's the amount of money that you are to collect for taxes. Anything above that's yours. So the tax collectors in our Lord's day were notoriously known for not only collecting what Rome demand, but then everything he collected above that was his to keep. And you can imagine how they extortion, they, they took advantage of those people. And when Jesus went home to be with him, Zacchaeus, uh, I don't know, I think there's, and this is just a personal opinion, that there must have been a time lapse between some of those verses there because he goes home, Jesus goes home with Zacchaeus. The next thing you hear recorded is Zacchaeus confessing to his Lord, if I have taken from someone more than I should have, I will restore it fourfold. And Jesus said, salvation has come to this house today. Not that doing that saved him. I think Zacchaeus got saved. And as a result of it, he wanted to make things right. He started having a guilty conscience. I took from somebody more than I should have. So I'm not only going to pay it back, I'm going to pay it back four times more than what I took from him. Interest, if you please. So if you've cheated somebody, took advantage of somebody, said something offensive to somebody, there's a barrier between you and that friendship or that business person or whomever it may be, get it right. Or you'll have a guilty conscience that'll plague you. You know, while I'm at it saying a guilty conscience, if you have a guilty conscience, you ought to thank God. Because that means you're still sensitive to and alive to the spirit. It's the person with a dead conscience that ought to be afraid. Because once that conscience is dead, there's no turning back. And then uh, number four, concentrate on what's good. Look at Philippians 4, 8, and 9. 
And notice the things that Paul is saying that you ought to focus attention on. And now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what is true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, admirable. Think about these. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. But not only think about it, in verse 9 he says, put it into practice. Keep on putting it into practice. All that you have learned and received from me, everything you hear from me and saw me doing, then the God of peace will be with you. So you're not only to focus on these things that are pure and honorable and right and lovely and true and admirable and excellent and worthy of praise. Focus your attention on these things, develop these things, but then put it into practice. Keep practicing these things. And when you focus on these things and you keep practicing these things, God of peace will be yours. God will give you peace. He will wipe away that guilty conscience and he will give you a clean, pure, righteous conscience. How do you do that? You, you think on the word of the Lord. Remember what Psalm 1 says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and in that law he meditates day and night. In 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped. So not only do you need to be cleansed by the blood of the Lord, but you can be corrected by the word of the Lord. Now quickly, I've got a couple of minutes. I want you to take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 32. Psalm 32. Psalm 32 is a prayer written by David uh, among, uh, I think Psalm 50, 51 would fall into this same category. He's committed adultery with Bathsheba. Um, the baby has been born, uh, stillborn, born dead. Um, he's had Bathsheba's uh, husband murdered by having him placed on the front lines of battle so that he would die and, and, and David would cover up uh, his sin of adultery and murder. And um, old Nathan the prophet comes, sent there by the Lord, and he sticks his old pointed finger at David, and he said, you're the guilty one. And boy, the Holy Spirit just stabbed David. He was a man after God's own heart. And, and when he had realized he had covered up his sin and it hadn't worked, and he just feels guilty about all of it. And, and so he begins to confess it, and he repents of it. And Psalm 51 is one of those prayers that he prayed and all of that. This Psalm 32 is another one. But I want to show you a couple of things in Psalm 32. The first four verses talks about how miserable he was when he was silent. Notice what he says in verse 1, Psalm 32. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now notice verse 3. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away. Through my groaning all day long, day and night, your hand laid heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. So he said, deep down on the inside, I just, I just wasted away on the inside. I just began to crumble on the inside. My vitality, my livelihood, my joy, my excitement, all of that was gone. You remember what he prayed in Psalm 51? Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, not my salvation, but thy God's salvation. He didn't lose his salvation, but he lost the joy of it. And, and a guilty conscience and sin, when you violate your conscience, that's what happens. 
It just steals the joy away from you. And he says, God, your hand laid heavily on my heart. You ever, you ever feel heavy at heart? Not because you've got something medically or physically wrong with you, but spiritually. The guilt of whatever it was you said or did just presses down on you and you cave in on the inside. And he said, God, I'm drying up. I'm, I'm, I'm crushing on the inside. I'm falling down. And he's silent. Why? He says, I kept silent. I, I didn't confess it. I didn't admit it. And it's just killing me on the inside. But then notice in verse five, I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord and you forgave what? The guilt of my sin. He acknowledged it. And he confessed it. The two different things. To acknowledge something, yeah, I did it. To confess it is that you agree with God. God says this is adultery. God says this is murder. God says this is lying. And when you agree with it, that's confession. God, I lied. God, I lusted. God, I stole something. I took something that wasn't mine. And on and on it goes. Whatever the sin is, you name it, you confess it. If you don't, you're going to crush yourself on the inside. You're going to be weighed down with guilt. But there's a way out. How do you want God to, to relate to you? God can relate to you in three ways. He can relate to you as a thing. He can relate to you as an animal. Or he can relate to you as one of his children. Now, where do I get all of that? From this passage of scripture. Notice what he says in verses three and four. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long, day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. Uh, Warren Wiersman, this is where I get this from. He says, when God's hand lays heavily upon you, it's like God, you, that you're a sponge and God just squeezes you, squeezes you. That's what he's saying here. God, your hand just laid heavily on me like a sponge. You were just squeezing all the vitality out of me. So he can relate to you as a thing. He can also relate to you as an animal. If you look at verse 9, do not be as the horse or as the mule which has no understanding, whose trappings include bit and bridle to hold them in check. Do you want a God to treat you that way? You want God to put a, a bit in your mouth and reins around your neck and guide you that way? Do you want God to treat you like an animal? Like an old stubborn mule? Or he can treat you like a child. His child. Look at verse 8. I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. So which would you rather God treat you? Like a thing, a sponge, or like an old stubborn mule, an animal? Or you want God to treat you like the child you are to him? And if you want him to treat you like a child, that means he'll teach you. He'll guide you. He'll show you the way that you should go. He'll help you to make the right choices. And then you won't have to worry about having a guilty conscience. He'll wipe it all clean. And you'll be happy. Let's bow together. Thank you, Holy Spirit.
for being the agent through which we feel guilty, for pricking our consciences, our hearts, our souls, our spirit, helping us to realize that when we go against your word and the law that is written upon our hearts as well as upon your holy word, that we will be miserable and weighed down heavily as you squeeze the very life out of us, especially if we're your child. There are some here today who's been struggling with and dealing and handing the matter of a guilty conscience on their own and with no satisfaction at all, not realizing that there is relief, there is gladness available to them, there is joy unspeakable, and the release of a guilty conscience when we come to you and trust you. If there's one here today, Holy Spirit, who's never accepted Christ as Lord and Savior, bring that conviction to their heart. Help them to realize their need to trust Jesus and give them the way, the knowledge, the encouragement, and draw them to you, and then give them the courage to make it public. We pray that if there are others here, Father, who just need to pray wherever they may be, that they may want to come forward and kneel here at the front and spend a moment or so in prayer to you then let that be done also, Holy Spirit. May it all be to the honor and glory of Jesus Christ and God our Heavenly Father in whose name I pray, amen. Andre's going to lead us. If you would please stand and sing and as we sing God's Holy Spirit leading you, you come. <laughs>